listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. I'm Sean Winter. And I'm Carolyn Francis. And today we're looking at readings for the third Sunday in Epiphany in Year A, looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. And because of the connection between The two texts, we're going to move from Isaiah straight to the Gospel text, which is Matthew 4, verses 12 to 23. And then after that, we will take a look at the second reading for uh, this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. So, Isaiah chapter 9. Carolyn, this is a text that probably has cropped up for people in the Christmas period, but now appears back in Epiphany, but in slightly abbreviated form because we only get the first four verses. We don't get verses 5 and following, which are all about the birth of a child to us and the um, government shall be upon his shoulders. All that Handel's Messiah stuff is left to one side. And we just have, it is a shame, but we have this vision of a people walking in darkness. How, what, what's the kind of mood of this uh, opening section of Isaiah 9? Well, I think this whole whole of uh, Isaiah 1 really points us toward the predicament of a people who are led by those who have lost their sense of faithfulness to God. They also have external threats and this all gives an enormous sense of uh, gloom and trepidation to a people. And so in the midst of this, we have these texts that offer some sense that God is a God who will be and is involved in this history and will somehow transform that which is being experienced as anguish and terrifying and uh, doom and it will give way to that uh, which will be in this latter time Uh, full of light and joy and the overwhelming of that which has oppressed people Um, and its its replacement, which is this sense of victory and light. Yeah. Um, So that's great because that opening verse, gloom, anguish, contempt, (laughs) giving way then to glorious way in the sea, um, a great light, um, increase of joy. That, that fundamental transition or shift is precisely what seems to be at stake here. It is. And, of course, um, evoking this former uh, great victory, uh, the day of Midian and yeah. uh, the victory of Gideon and these improbable warriors over their enemies at that time and uh, a reminder, I suppose, of the to the people of the way God has been present uh, in overcoming darkness, I think before. that's I think that's exactly right. What what strikes me is, I mean, if you go back and read chapter eight, one of the kind of compounding problems. So you've rightly noted that there's external threat here, and the historical context here is something about you know the Assyrian conquest of the land of Israel and taking over um, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are the areas that were kind of taken over or annexed by the Assyrian Empire. So there's the external threat of this empire. But in chapter 8, the other thing that becomes clear is, like, God's gone missing. God, 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 God isn't showing up when God is supposed to. and People don't know where God is or what God wants to say. So this is a text kind of almost like an audacious hope um, 
that that even though we don't know where God is in this current crisis and context, nonetheless the hope is that light will come from darkness. It is audacious and I think that's part of what gives it this feeling, uh, this hymnic feeling. These are almost like words you would sing. I would certainly be inclined to use them liturgically in a a service of worship because uh, the dichotomy works well. We have the contrast of dark and light and uh, of... Uh, failure and success of uh, anguish and of joy um, and it works well even um, responsively I think for yeah. people to speak those words out. I think one of the interesting things is how uh, the language that's used here and this kind of primal and elemental image of darkness and light which of course is such a strong and deep tradition in any number of different um, religious traditions how even in a text like Isaiah, lends itself to constant reiteration. So, That's true. So, um, so here there's a specific 8th century BCE version of it, the Assyrian crisis, um, but Isaiah 9 belongs in the canonical book of Isaiah, which seems to have developed in the period of the Babylonian exile or just afterwards. So that's another version of this crisis in yes, which, again. you know, where's, where's God gone? What's God yes. going to do? Um, and it strikes me that's really interesting in the fact that Matthew will then pick up this verse as he describes the context for the arrival of uh, Jesus of, of Nazareth. This notion that um, the, the, the pattern of external circumstances combined with uh, a lack of confidence about where God is or what God is doing or where God is leading is to be accompanied by the preservation of hope in some way. And, and that's something which is a constant invitation and, and challenge to, uh, to faithful people. Well said. Yeah. Um, so let's move on then to talk about Matthew, where we get this uh, passage alluded to, uh, more than alluded to, it's directly quoted, verse 14, chapter 4, 14, in one of these um, fulfillment formulas from, from Matthew's gospel. Um, and it's really a way of saying, uh, okay, so um, Isaiah talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and, uh, but then talks about um, the joy, the source of joy and light and deliverance coming from this region across the Jordan called the Galilee. Um, and so it's in that context that the arrival of Jesus uh, comes. I mean, what do we find in this passage from Matthew in this week? We've got several kind of elements going on there, but what are the main constituent elements of these verses in chapter 4? Well, of course, we begin with the arrest of John the Baptist. Yep. So uh, its context is yet again some sense of impending doom, right. of, of failure or defeat or of the fear of this um, external force that threatens that which is uh, part of the gospel story. And we find Jesus uh, leaving Nazareth and making his home in Capernaum. So yet another example um, of Jesus and his family displaced, Mm -hmm. which I think is always worth noting uh, given the global situation that so so many people face uh, today. This is a, a person who's... Uh, location has been forced to change many, many times. Um, And then from this uh, fearsome beginning of the arrest of John the Baptist and Jesus uh, being displaced and relocating himself, uh, we have Matthew reminding us yet again that this is all part of fulfilling uh, the great prophecies of old, including the one from Isaiah. 
And Jesus' response to that is repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So it becomes an opportunity for him to again articulate um, this is an opportunity for repentance and to become aware of the imminence of the kingdom of God. Yeah. So this language, uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near, um, we're in the year of Matthew. We're going to come across this phrase an awful lot as we make our way through different parts of the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, as someone who's you know had many, many years of preaching, <laughs> preaching gospel texts, this, this notion of the kingdom of God or this Matthean version, the kingdom of heaven, how do you find yourself wanting to talk about that when you talk about the present day? I think it's really, it's quite challenging. I think people often uh, immediately in their minds go to a place, a location. Right. And so it's helpful in preaching, I think, to... Uh, tease that out a little bit. Matthew doesn't help that, right? Because the phrase heaven yes. or the word heaven immediately makes people think about where yes. you go when you die. We look right? upwards That's and, right, exactly. and hope to the future. <laughs> and so I think somehow finding some language, some vocabulary that interrupts the sense that we're talking about a castle in the sky and instead invites us to think about some radically different way of life, a right. reorganisation of the world in which we live, right. not the world in which we hope to escape right. to via some kind of spiritual ejectaceet. So some translations, I mean, the NRSV preserves this fairly traditional language of kingdom. The Greek word is basileia, which relates to the word for a king. So that makes some sense. But other translations will reach for other language to do some of that. So some translations talk about the rule of God or the rule of heaven, or some will talk about the empire um, of heaven. And, and if we think about empires today we know that empires aren't just about spaces and places they're about networks of relationships and power and structures of authority and um, ways of uh, exercising control uh, over people that that operate at myriad different levels of human life and society so that idea that the the empire of god is some kind of account of how all these different layers of our lives and our relationships with one another might be ordered in a particular kind of way. I think that's a really helpful disruption to this notion that it's just about heaven. It is helpful. And, of course, we need to remind ourselves that uh, the people of this time and place are are very familiar and unhappily so with being ruled by oppressive powers, um, other colonial or imperial powers. And so the promise is that a different kind of power and organisation of the world is upon us. I'm really struck by the fact that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus appears before the disciples again and he makes this kind of massively imperial claim, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the kind of thing that was said about the Roman Empire Mm. all the time, that they had authority over the whole of the whole world, over every nation. Um, But... But when Jesus says it, he says it um, as someone who is kind of fulfilling this notion of being the son of man. And so what you have to do is to kind of go back into the story of his life in the gospel and say, okay, well, if God has now said that Jesus has all authority, what did he do in his life and in his ministry that established or made this authority real in the world? And the answer is, well, it has very little to do with what we would understand as the traditional assertion of power or authority or control over other people. It's restorative, it's liberative, it's yes. um, it's fundamentally 
born of an identification with people in their need and their their, their suffering. Which I think is particularly challenging for those of us living in privileged and right. wealthy situations. Absolutely. I mean, this is language designed for people whose situation was dire, yep. um, whose existence was precarious. Right. Uh, and so in the hands of those who are privileged and well-off, this can easily be misused or yep. at the very least misunderstood. So we'll see next week, uh, the Matthew reading is from the Beatitudes, and there we, it's made very clear that, yes. that, you know, if you think about the kingdom of God simply through the lens of your own, you know, well-off, entirely privileged, bourgeois existence, um, you're going to misunderstand what this is actually all about. And if that's the situation that you're in, the message of the kingdom and the invitation to join the work of the kingdom might be far more challenging to you than it is reassuring. Yes. And yet, at the same time, for us pastorally, as we're preaching, we we get to engage in this great privilege, which is to say to those who really are in desperate situations, yep. whose uh, own sense of survival is threatened, that this is good news. Yep. So the disciples are called to join that movement. So yes. um, tell us, just describe your sense of the kind of scene of Jesus strolling by the seaside and just picking up well, disciples. Well, it's all terribly improbable, isn't it? <laughs> People going about earning their living as they know they need to do and just uh, upon an introduction letting go of their nets and following Jesus. Um, I mean, many of us have had our own sense of responding to a kind of call mm. from Jesus and, and so this can be... Um, comforting language in a way that reminds us of that sense of vocation or call. But I think we do have to stop a little and uh, figure out what it actually means for people to give up that which they were doing before yep. to follow Jesus. Yep. So uh, for fishermen to give up their livelihood, uh, to give away the work that they did which was important, mm -hmm. uh, to do a different kind of work um, and fishing for people is probably not a, an easy image for us to work with today. Well, I, I mean, m many people, I think, understand that image. I will make you fishers of men in the words of the yes. old song that we used to sing. Um, uh, that uh, people understand it as some kind of really quite lovely invitational, come and join us, we're all very nice people um we'll, we'll make ourselves attractive <laughs> so that we so can we draw so that we might lure people in that that's exactly <laughs> right you know um whereas uh, i mean it's a strange image it's not a terribly common image but um when god goes fishing metaphorically in the hebrew bible um usually it's not a description of kind of welcome and inclusion it's an expression of judgment um uh, there's a passage in uh, Amos 4 where Amos talks about God coming to judge God's people and bring, putting fish hooks in their mouths and kind of dragging them away to judgment yeah. by the fish hooks in their mouths. I suspect um, that what's at stake here is this invitation to join into a movement that is fundamentally oriented towards this notion of critique and judgment upon certain ways of thinking about what God's rule and God's presence looks like and we know that when we get to the rest of Matthew's gospel Jesus will be deeply critical of some ways of uh, understanding um, how God's authority and where God's authority plays plays itself out. So that's a very different idea from this being our invitation to evangelism, um, introduction to contagious Christianity. I don't, I, I suspect it's not that. I think it's an invitation to 
um, do what Jesus did and proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's something that needs the exercise of the critical capacity for recognising where God's reign and God's rule is not present or um, where another form of reign or rule is present that is fundamentally hostile to and opposed um, to God's reign and uh, God's rule. Um, It's not a call to be nice. It's a call to be faithful to that vision of what it is that um, God's reign and God's rule stands for. I mean, it does certainly also give us the sense that it involves a radical shift and the leaving behind of some of which we are familiar with or attached to. That's right. So in order to do this, you need to detach yourself from some of those things because they would become um, encumbrances. Um, So there's a kind of revolutionary dimension to this going on in the background here, I think, which is quite interesting, probably historically in relation to what people found attractive in the preaching and ministry of the historical Jesus, but certainly in the way that Matthew portrays it, that um, you you can't do this half-heartedly, you can't it's not, a, it's not a call to be taken lightly. Uh, it involves some kind of fundamental reorientation of your allegiances in ways that are consistently demanding. Well, we've talked about uh, the Gospel of, of Matthew and its relationship to the text in Isaiah. Um, we're going to move to a slightly different uh, tone when we think about Corinthians after the break. Well, Sean, we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 18, and we are appealed to in this passage to let go of our disagreements and divisions and be united. Uh, what does Paul have in mind here? Oh, well, that's a question. Um, so the first thing to say is that uh, a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of opinion been offered on the question of what the divisions themselves were all about. Um, Paul uh, clearly gives the impression that the Corinthians, uh, Corinthian Christians had, had kind of fallen out into various kinds of what we might call tribal allegiance, associating themselves with particular leaders or authority figures in the early Christian uh, movement. So um, the two that are named other than Paul uh, are Apollos and Cephas. And uh, there's all sorts of um, exploration as to why people might have been more attracted to Apollos than Paul or more attracted to Cephas than Paul and whether Cephas ever was in Corinth or why people would be connected to him, etc., etc., etc. I don't think that in the end the preacher is going to solve any of those problems other than to recognise the danger of tribalism. And cults of personality, cults charismatic of personality, leaders. Absolutely. Yep. The way in which allegiance to Christ and allegiance to the gospel and allegiance to Christ's people can often manifest itself as forms of allegiance to particular renditions or accounts or convictions um, that a person or a particular group of people um, have within yes. the body of the, the, the church itself. And remember, we're not talking large scale here. We're talking a small... Um, group of early Christian assemblies of a couple of families or a handful of people Um, and uh, so you know the 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 Peter party was not 5,000 people over here with the Apollos party 10,000 over here we're talking about you know a family or two or a network of people who might have had some association with Peter and his message. And Paul's sense is that this distracts people from 
keeping Christ at the centre of their faith and their orientation becomes towards something other than the crucified Christ. Yeah, and let's be honest, Paul is playing, walking a bit of a tricky tightrope here because one of the things that he's saying is, if you feel a particular allegiance to me, then you shouldn't worry about that either. But of course, Paul wants people to have an allegiance to his idea that they shouldn't have allegiances in the first place. So he still wants them to agree with him. Because he is correct. <laughs> because he's the one who, yes. who's correct. But, I mean, the argument gets into this uh, really quite, um, I think, quite amusing and quite splendid kind of Paul backing himself into a corner. Um, so uh, where he says, I belong to Christ, I'm not even sure there was a group of Corinthians saying, oh, we don't do any of that stuff. He's almost ridiculing this idea of tribal allegiance um, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? That's almost kind of snarky and sarcastic. It is snarky. Um, and then he says, I didn't baptise any of you. Um, oh. oh, except. Yes. <laughs> and actually I don't really remember. Uh, actually, so, I, <laughs> so plentiful have been the baptisms. That's right. So, um, so Paul is quite clear that he himself is implicated in this tribalism. And Paul is also quite clear that the Corinthians should listen very carefully to him when he tells them that it shouldn't be that way. But we are left with this very strong emphasis in this text that the source of agreement, the thing that overcomes divisions, the idea of unity in the same mind and the same purpose is oriented to what Paul calls his gospel. And he identifies that as something that isn't about eloquence, um, it's rather about foolishness um, related to the cross of Christ and the message of Christ crucified. Now, of course, some 2,000 years later, we're all very familiar with uh, divisions in the church. Um, Many of us uh, are part of denominations which are themselves dissenting movements. Uh, What do we do with this call to be unified to what extent are we being asked to agree with everyone else who calls themselves christian and what do we do with these i think almost inevitable fractures that occur in uh the communities that we uh, are part of but also the broader body of christ well the first thing to say is that that i have no sense that paul was successful in uniting the corinthians through the writing of this letter if 2 Corinthians is anything to go by, um, the evidence is that things got worse after Paul wrote this letter. Okay, so it's not as simple as asking So it's not as simple as saying, please all just get along. Yes. Um, but the other thing to say is that it seems to me that Paul is quite clear at certain points that there are places where there are, there are appropriate differences of opinion. Mm. Um Uh, in the relation to the question of food offered to idols for example he does this kind of equivocation between you know whether or not we should say well idols do exist and therefore we shouldn't um, eat food or whether we realize that there's only one god that idols really aren't a thing and therefore we're free to eat whatever the hell we want and paul paul equivocates between these two ideas he's not really completely convinced in 1 corinthians 7 on questions of marriage and remarriage he kind of says well you know jesus said one thing I'm going to tell you something that kind of gives you a bit more slack and a bit more accommodation. He clearly wants to assert his authority, but he's aware that there are differences of opinion. Mm. 
So what he wants to do here is to place at the centre of those disagreements not the absence of disagreements, but a criterion that will enable you to navigate them somehow. And the criterion is, do you realise that what's at stake here is a message that is a message about a crucified Messiah, about God's identification with what is weak and what is shameful in the world, and can you find a way of handling your disagreements that places that at the centre of the conversation rather than your own opinions or your tribal allegiance? So what becomes compelling then is not the almost inevitability of human disagreement, but this imagery around unifying or reconciling or mending um, the the process by which we might actually start to repair our repair that which is broken. Yeah, um, so I, the, the only source of the restoration of relationship that is damaged or broken for Paul is a, a, a common reorientation to this good news, this message of, of the gospel. Now, that doesn't get you out of everything because, of course, if people take their side of an argument and identify that with the gospel, then a conversation becomes very difficult. It does. And uh, to preach on this passage in a congregational context in which there may well be live disputes um, is perhaps bold, but also perhaps very important. I think that it's important because uh, it seems to me that there is very little possibility of moving beyond some of those very strong disagreements in the life of the church that doesn't begin with mutual recognition of our common desire to orient ourselves to the gospel of um, uh, reconciliation through Christ's death and resurrection. If if that isn't shared, it's almost impossible to even know what the conversation would look like beyond the fighting of the culture wars. Um, But I think it's not just about those kind of big topic issues uh, generally. It's about the way in which the whole of the church's life, these, these divisions aren't just... I mean, some of them are about sex. We'll find that later on in 1 Corinthians. But some of them are about what we do when we worship together. Yes. Some of them are about, um, you know, how we relate to the wider culture. Some of them are about, you know, what do we value and who do we value in the life of the church. Some of them are about what do we believe about the resurrection. So it's not just the kind of high-stake ethical issues. It's the fact that actually to be a church, <laughs> to be an ecclesia, an assembly, is to be gathered or as Paul uses the language, called into a relationship with one another that is centred on the proclamation of this good news. And there seems to me really nothing better to uh, preach on, if that is your calling, than uh, on keeping the crucified Christ at the centre of our gathering, at the centre of our worship, and at the centre of our living as the people of God. And constantly asking the question, what does that then mean for us? Amen. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.